0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, I will read the entirety of the chapter, but we will be focusing more narrowly on verses 12 through 23. Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that through you, that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefits were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification, and the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. As far the reading of God's holy word. The words of Jesus are... Very familiar to us and very well known that no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And then he said, You cannot serve God and mammon. In our text in Romans chapter 6 this evening, we have a similar idea of not being able to serve two masters. And if you look at the sermon title in your bulletin, you'll notice that it says no, nobody but no body in italics can serve two masters. And the idea there is to draw out this idea that as we think about service to one of two masters, that it entails your body. That the way that you serve one of two masters will include the use of your body in the service. And so this evening we'll be looking at this idea that you are called to present the parts of your body as righteous weapons and as righteous slaves to God. You are to present your body parts to God as righteous weapons and as righteous slaves. Or to put it negatively, and as our text also states, we are to not let sin reign in our mortal bodies. We are not to present the members of our bodies to sin as weapons for unrighteousness, nor are we to present the members of our body to sin as unrighteous slaves doing sin's bidding. So as we consider this idea tonight, presenting our body parts to God as righteous weapons and as righteous slaves, we'll consider two metaphors for the parts of the body— two masters that could be served with the parts of the body, and then two motivations for serving God, serving the the better master, the good master, with our bodies. So first, two metaphors for the parts of the body, and and first note that the body is uh, emphasized in, in portions of our text. If you look again at at verse 12, we read, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you may obey its lusts. And then in verse 13, do not go on presenting the members of your body, or perhaps just members, but what what is being referred to there is to the parts of the human body. Do not present the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. And then again in verse 19, there is a reference to the members, the members of the body. And Paul characterizes the parts of the body using two metaphors. The first is as weapons. Your body is a weapon, or even your body is many weapons. Your body is as many weapons as you have limbs and appendages and organs. This is not just something that you might hear in a martial arts studio or a karate studio when you walk in there and they, they teach you that your whole body is a weapon to be used uh, in the event that you are assaulted. But Paul is speaking of a moral use of the body, but he characterizes it as, as weapons that we are presenting to God. Our, our translations render it as, as instruments, but it is more specifically weaponry that is in view. These aren't presenting our bodies as musical instruments or as medical instruments, as scalpel and, and other things. Or It's not speaking of carpentry and, and presenting your bodies as tools of carpentry. It's speaking of, of weaponry. We are to present our bodies as weapons in the service of God, or, or more specifically, the parts of our body, the members of our body. As weapons. And so if we think about this idea of of our body parts as weapons in service, we we can think about that imagery some and and what it implies. That uh, the weapons are the instruments that a king uses for carrying out his will and even for extending uh, his kingdom. That God is at work in the world. That he is... Engaged in a warfare against sin. And yes, he conducts this warfare through his risen, exalted Son. He conducts this warfare through the enabling power of the Holy Spirit. But he also conducts this warfare through you. That your body, your body parts, get to be weapons that God uses for the carrying out of this holy war against sin. Paul also uses extensively the imagery of the members of our bodies as being slaves. Slaves that were once presented to sin but are now presented to God. And we can again think about that imagery of a slave. What does a slave do? A slave carries out the will of his master. The master gives an express stated desire, an express decree. You can think of an earthly master who might command a slave, go fetch me a bucket of water. And then it's the slave's job to go and make that happen, to carry out and bring into effect the will of his master. And so, again, applying this to the parts of your body, we can think of it in this way, that you are to carry out the will of a master, that you are to bring to concrete expression something that your master desires, Now, as we speak about our bodies as weapons and as slaves, we need to understand and, and qualify this a little bit. Uh, we are not talking about presenting our bodies as slaves and, and weapons in, in a sense of disciplining the body in terms of physical prowess or athleticism. And to illustrate this, uh, for those of you who follow sports to any degree, are you able to think of any famous athlete, whether it's a a collegiate athlete at Ohio State playing football or any professional athlete who has tremendous discipline of his body in athletic terms, who is able to uh, control his body athletically in a way that is very skilled and beyond what any of us could do, and yet who has been in the news because he was involved in some kind of scandal or who is simply known to be living an immoral lifestyle. In one respect, athletes like that have tremendous discipline in use of their bodies. They, they may have even trained their bodies to be like a weapon in terms of athletics, but that's not what we're talking about. Because from the moral perspective, in terms of the ethical use of their body parts, they are undisciplined. And they do not have that control. In fact, they're, uh, however athletic they may be, it is still uh, a reality for those that are outside of Christ that their body parts are being presented t- to sin as obedient slaves. So we are talking here about the moral use of the body as, as a weapon and as a slave but we should also further qualify this that what is a moral use or an ethical use of the body? That it must be defined by scripture. It's not just coming up with whatever you think sounds like a, a good idea for morality. But It must be governed by scriptures. There are those who might say, well, it's really holy if you don't eat these foods. Or it's really holy if you discipline your body according to this ascetic practice. And scripture elsewhere says that that has the appearance of wisdom, but it's actually of no value against the passions of the flesh. So we're talking about a moral use of the body as defined by Scripture in terms of what is ethical and what is moral. So we have these two metaphors to speak about the parts, the members of the body. And so we should be sensitive to Scripture's language of how we are to use our bodies. We have a very good and right emphasis that's even supported by our text about the importance of the heart. Our text says that you uh, became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching that you were uh, entrusted to. And so without losing any of that good emphasis on the necessity of heart involvement, of the will of the heart being engaged in obedience, so that we're not just going through the motions in an outward bodily way with a heart that is not engaged, without losing any of that important emphasis. We should also be sensitive, though, to when Scripture speaks about the use of our bodies as part of our obedience to God, that those new desires that the heart has, that heart that has been renewed and recreated in Christ, is to find expression in a concrete way in bodily actions. That the new heart's desires are to come out, so to speak, through our fingertips. So, the members of your body are weapons, slaves to be presented to one of two masters. We look at the second point. There are two masters that you could present the members of your body to. The first is sin, and the other is God. And we'll, we'll deal with sin first, the former master. Sin in our text is portrayed as a suprahuman power, a power above the human plane. It is portrayed as the subject of active verbs and even personal verbs. It's described as having a kind of agency, external to us and yet lamentably taking up residency in the members of our body. Listen to the way that Paul describes sin in chapters 6 and 7. Sin tries to reign in your mortal bodies, 612. Sin is a master to whom one can present his body parts as weapons, 613, or as slaves, 619. Sin has wages, that it can pay to its slaves, 6.23. Sin takes opportunity through the commandment, Romans 7.8 and 11. Sin comes alive, 7.9. Sin deceives and kills, 7.11. Sin works death, 7.13. Sin is that which Paul says he has been sold under, 7.14. Sin is the agent who does the thing contrary to what Paul says is his desire, that he delights with his inner mind in the law of God, but he sees in his members another law, another principle, and he says, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Like a a parasite that has taken up residence in his body, making his body do things contrary to what he delights with in in his inner man, in, in in his mind. And sin is placed as uh, is placed opposite to God that Christ died to sin but that he lives to God and that we are to count ourselves dead to sin and alive to God that we are to present our members as slaves not to sin but to God and so sin is here portrayed as, as a power a dominating power seeking dominion over the body. Verse 12 Sin desires to rule in your mortal body and to make you obey your body's passions. Sin is like Pharaoh chasing after the Israelites after they had left Egypt. That it once had a dominion, that dominion has been stripped from it, but now it's going after its prey that it has lost and it wants to bring it back. Or sin is like a dethroned king who has not yet been exiled from the land, and the land is your body. He has no legal authority because dethroned. He can no longer use the law to accuse. He can no longer use the law as a a means of accomplishing death. But he still goes door to door in the old neighborhoods of his former loyal subjects, He goes to the door of Mr. Eyes, and he invites Mr. Eyes to the view from the rooftop of David's house. He goes to the door of Mrs. Ears, and he keeps her spellbound for hours as he tells her the latest gossip. He goes to the home of Mr. Tongue, and he gives him a an insult that is just too witty not to be used. He goes to the door of Mr. and Mrs. Hands with their ten children, and he offers to tutor those ten children in how they might use a computer keyboard, and especially to tutor the two stubby children on how to use a smartphone. How sin seeks to reign in the body is mysterious. How does that work? How does it work with something like the brain that is, at one time, the the instrument of the soul through which the soul thinks and reasons, and yet is also part of the body in which sin is seeking to reign and dominate? I can't explain these things to you. It's it's mysterious. But what is clear that sin seeks dominion over the body, it seeks to control. And yet thanks be to God that you don't have to obey. That you do not have to submit. To sin's dominion in your body. That you can resist. Because you are a slave now to a new master and to a different master. That through Jesus Christ, the sin body has been brought to nothing, the sin body has been destroyed, the sin body has been killed. Because you were co-crucified with Christ. That you belong so much to Christ that you were crucified with him. That that body in which sin would seek to dominate and reign has been put to death. Because you belong to Jesus Christ who was put to death. That all of your sins have been reckoned to him and that the, the dominion which sin claimed through the law to accuse has been satisfied. All, all the law's demands have been satisfied. And Jesus Christ has now been vindicated and raised righteous. And there is no longer any accusation that can be made against you because you belong to him. And that extends even to your body. That your body belongs to Christ. And Christ's body belongs to you. Paul elsewhere affirms this. The body is not for immorality but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? And addressing a context of sexual immorality, he says shall I take away the members of Christ and join them and use them for purposes of immorality, join them to a prostitute? May it never be. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? So your body belongs to Christ. You have been co-crucified, co-buried with him. But also Christ's body belongs to you. Is not the bread which we break, which we broke this morning, is it not sharing in the body of Christ? That Christ, through his body offered on the cross, has brought an end to the domain and realm and reign of death. And that sin no longer is your master. That you have been raised again to new life with Jesus, so that you may present yourself, including your bodies, as living, as living sacrifices to God. Jesus Christ has brought an end to the dominating power of sin, though sin still retains and seeks to gain a foothold in the body. You have been freed to serve the living and true God with your body, to use your body as weapons, as slaves for carrying out the will of God. Now, there are two motivations for presenting our bodies, the members of our bodies, to God as weapons of righteousness and as slaves of righteousness. And the first is the contrary, the, the negative side of things. Those who present their bodies as obedient slaves to sin have death as its end. Look at verses 20 and following. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit or what fruit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. And then verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. That those who present their bodies as obedient slaves to sin have as the wage that they earn, the wage that they are rewarded with, For their service is death. So that's one motivation, to avoid the death that is the end of such living. But the other motivation is its opposite, eternal life through Jesus Christ. And that is the end of presenting the parts of your body to God as weapons of righteousness and as slaves of righteousness. Verse 22, but now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. And the end of verse 23, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so the end of dishonorable living is death, and the end of righteous living is death eternal life. But notice also the distinction between the two. That the one, death, is a wage that is paid, as according as deserved. But the eternal life is a free gift, not given on the basis or the merits of that righteous living. And so we need to understand that that righteous living sequentially does precede eternal life. That, That is the pattern, in that uh, unrighteous living is followed by and rewarded with death. But as righteous living is followed by eternal life, we recognize that that eternal life is received as a gift through Christ, because he has fulfilled all righteousness for us. That as we seek to present our bodies as instruments of righteousness, we do so reminding ourselves of the fact that this was preeminently true and uniquely true of Jesus Christ, who never once ever presented any member of his body or any organ of his body as an instrument of unrighteousness, but through the entirety of his life in perfect devotion to the Father fulfilled all righteousness even in his body. And fulfilling all righteousness in his body, he also received in his body the penalty for your sins. So congregation, as those who have reckoned themselves as dead to sin and alive to God because you belong to Jesus, you have been baptized with him, you have been co-crucified and co-buried with him, and now you live with him alive to God, present your body parts from the heart, from, from a renewed heart to God as weapons of righteousness. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your son Jesus Christ the righteous, who has died for us and who has been raised again for us, and with whom we have died and with whom we have been raised. We pray that you would enable us, enable us unto a greater degree of obedience to you, that we would not grow weary in the war against the flesh that you would empower us by your Holy Spirit to do that which is pleasing and honorable in your sight. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.